Okay. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, too, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and the extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the word of God. Thank you much for that reading. Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. Uh, Won't you bow your head in a word of prayer, and then we'll come to that passage. Father, as always, uh, but especially when we come to this difficult topic of money, we, um, we don't need more morality. What we need, Lord, is to, is to behold you, is to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, need to, we need to behold your pure and perfect generosity. And we need to be transformed into the likeness of your Son. And that is a work of your Spirit, Father. That is um, not something we can work up in ourselves. And so we plead with you for mercy this evening, that you would be kind to us, that you would meet with us, that you would transform us, and that we would leave here changed people for Christ's sake. Amen. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. On another occasion, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It's very clear to us from these two encounters with the Lord Jesus that money can easily become an idol, a false god. And overcoming the worship of that false god involves radical generosity. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The New Testament teaching on money and how to relate to money as a disciple of Jesus Christ centers on at least two things. First, contentment, that was last week, and now this week, radical generosity. So today, we want to understand what radical generosity is, what it looks like in the life of a disciple, an ordinary disciple, what it looks like in the life of an ordinary discipleship community like ours here this evening. In the redeemed family, what does it look like? And then we want to think about what will motivate us in that direction. So it's the what 
and then the how of radical generosity. That's the ground we want to cover this evening, the what and then the how of radical generosity. And in fact, we have both questions answered in God's providence in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. So what is he doing in this part of the letter? He's encouraging the Christian disciples in Corinth to follow through on a commitment that they had made to help Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering because of a famine. Now, that's no ordinary level of suffering. They had no food. The local economy had collapsed. They are in dire straits. And Paul is mobilizing his network of churches. He's fundraising through that network of churches to try and help them in their time of need. And to encourage the Corinthian church in giving, he uses another group of churches from another part of Greece, the Macedonian churches, and he uses them as an example of radical generosity. So the churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, they had all given radically, in radically generous ways to help these Christians in Jerusalem. Christians they had never even met. Christians they were likely never to meet. And yet they helped them in these radically generous ways. What did that look like? That's the question. From their example, and Paul fleshes it out in the passage that was read to us, from their example, we see that radical generosity gives at inconvenient times, beyond expectations, beyond expectations and even beyond means, voluntarily to the undeserving. Radical generosity gives at inconvenient times, beyond expectations and even means, voluntarily to the undeserving. So we start with a brand of generosity that gives at inconvenient times. Last week I gave the example of my friend who who wants to become filthy rich. He's open about that. He says, I want to become filthy rich and then I'll give back. Now we may smirk at that. But if we're honest, there's a little bit of that in all of us, isn't there? We all plan to be generous one day soon. We're not far off. We just need to get through this season, whatever this season may be. So when you're a student, your attitude to giving is, give what? Be generous with what? I'm a student. You give me some slack. When you finish your studies and you get to your first job, I speak from experience, it's as soon as I finish paying off this car, then watch me give. Right now, that's my focus. Just give me a year or two or four, depending on the payment plan. When you get married, then you start to think about children. And, you know, we have to be responsible about this. We've got to be responsible. As soon as we just have that little nest egg in place, And when you have your first child, then you start to think about your second. And the nest egg target more than doubles in size. When the kids eventually leave the house, then it's generosity for sure. I'm a big believer. Just right now I need to double down on that pension. And then, of course, there's the legacy for the grandkids. But as soon as that's in place, do you get the gist? Our basic approach to generosity is sign me up. I'll start tomorrow. And of course, as with so many things in life, tomorrow never comes. Contrast that with the Macedonian churches. Verse 2, not only did they overflow with generosity, they did so during a severe test of affliction. Now, what does that mean? That's shorthand for persecution. They were being persecuted. Violent, aggressive hostility towards those local church communities. If ever there was an inconvenient time to ask them to give money, it was now. They were under immediate threat. If anything, famine was a lesser threat than the threat they were facing. They could easily make the case that they were the ones who needed support and that it's actually deeply insensitive to ask them. But we see none of that. They don't even ask for a postponement. None of we'd love to help Just let us get through this season. Things are a bit hectic at the moment. None of that. It's their deepest joy for them to give. 
to give abundantly, to give immediately, at whatever cost to themselves. Radical generosity gives at inconvenient times. In fact, radical generosity gives whenever the opportunity presents itself. Secondly, radical generosity gives beyond expectations and even beyond means. In verse 5, Paul says, The Macedonian churches gave not as we expected. In other words, they gave beyond what we expected. They exceeded expectation. And that in itself is radical if we stop to think about it. Because if we're honest, so much of our giving, like so much of our Christian lives, is all about meeting expectation. Or the temptation to meet expectation. If you've been in church for any length of time, you have been socialized into church culture. It's all about those norms and values. It's about what others in the community think of me. Not all the time, but there's always a temptation in that direction. Am I playing by the rules of the game? Am I fitting in? Am I conforming to the standard of good Christian? At its worst, it's a culture of shame and honor. Now, how do we know if that's playing out in our fellowship or in our, in our own hearts? as individual disciples of the Lord Jesus. Two simple tests. We ask, how much do I need to give? And then we grab hold of that 10% tithe that we read about in the Old Testament. And we make that a rule to live by. But that rule isn't true to the teaching, at least the New Testament teaching, on money and giving. In fact, it isn't even true to the Old Testament teaching on money and giving. So why are we so quick to embrace it and make it a rule to live by? It's because we are looking to meet expectations. We want a hard line. See, because if you have a hard line, if you have a rule, well, it becomes a means by which you can manipulate others and God into believing that you're worth it, that you've passed somehow, that you have earned your way into the community that you are living by community norms and standards and values, and therefore you are secure in the community. Your place is secure. You've earned it. You've got your stripes. You've given the 10%. See how this works? If 10% is is the expectation, if that's what I'm going to be measured by, well, then I've met the social standard. Why would I even begin to think about giving anything else? Another simple test. When Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, why do we find that so hard? When we act generously, why do we find it so hard to keep to ourselves? Why are we so desperate to share it? Why do we let it slip so easily, especially with those whose opinions matter to us? Because we are doing it to meet expectation. It's a sure sign that we're doing it to meet expectation or to win the approval of others. To demonstrate to them, I belong here. Without even being conscious about it, we are giving to meet expectation. And so it's not an act of love. It's an investment. Only it's an investment in social capital rather than material capital. Do you see how this works? Not so the Macedonians. They give with no regard to expectation. That's what the text says. Their decision to give and how much to give wasn't guided by expectation. It was the last thing they were thinking about. In fact, and this is also radical, their decision to give and how much to give wasn't even guided by their means. They gave beyond their means. Now that flies in the face of everything we know and believe about financial planning, doesn't it? Think about it. If you were advising the Macedonian churches, would you have supported their decision to give beyond their means? I can be honest with you. I don't think I would have. I would have said something like, you know, giving is really important, but you need to be wise. 
The Proverbs tell us about the ant who works hard and then stores for the winter. And remember, charity starts at home, so you want to work hard and make sure that your family are taken care of. And then you can give to others out of the surplus. That's the classic Protestant work and money ethic. I'm just not sure it agrees entirely with our passage. We would caution wisdom. In fact, that's our go-to escape clause when it comes to radical generosity. We, hide, we tend to hide behind wisdom. Wisdom. Not so the Apostle Paul. Look at what he does. He actually applauds the Macedonians. He holds them up as an example to be honored and to be emulated. In verse 3, he testifies that they gave beyond their means. He celebrates the fact that they gave out of their extreme poverty in verse 2. And it's not just Paul. It's also his master, the Lord Jesus, the wisdom of God himself. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came up and put in two very small copper coins with only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. She, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. See, in the divine accounting, not the human accounting, the divine accounting, though the poor widow gave next to nothing, she gave her heart. Because she gave not out of her surplus, but out of her poverty. In the divine accounting, it's not the amount that matters, it's the heart of the giver. When I was preaching this this morning at the 8 o'clock service, two brothers came to me afterwards, and they reminded me how these passages can be abused and have been abused by pastors to exploit the poor in order to enrich themselves. Now, hopefully, if you've been with us any length of time, you know that that's not what we're about at all. And if you ever see that, if you ever suspect that, I would counsel you now publicly this evening in front of all these witnesses, do not give us a cent. Starve us out. Because that is blasphemy of the worst kind. That is an inversion of the kingdom ethic. It is not about exploiting poor people so that pastors can enrich themselves. No. What we have here is the Lord saying that the blessedness of giving is for everyone in the family. It is not the preserve of the wealthy because it's not about what you give. It's about your heart in giving. Do you see? So please hear it in that vein. That's radical generosity. It gives beyond expectation. It even gives out of or beyond means out of poverty. Thirdly, radical generosity gives voluntarily. Let me ask you, how do you feel about giving your money away? And, and just to be clear, when we're talking about radical generosity, we're not, we're not limiting that to giving to the church, right? This is radical generosity whenever the opportunity presents itself, all right? So let me ask you, how do you feel about giving your money away? Is it something you want to do? Or is it a bit of a chore, a bit of a burden, a bit of a grudge purchase? You know, like paying your TV license to the SABC when all you ever do is stream Netflix on your computer? Is giving to others or giving to the church just a source of perpetual guilt and frustration for you? Like that car guard at your window. You don't really want to give anything, it's an irritation. But you constantly feel like you have to. How do you feel about giving? Well, if any of that is true of you, and I, again, I'll be open with you, sometimes that's true of me, more often than I like, contrast that with the Macedonians, verse 3. They gave of their own accord, begging us earnestly, begging us for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They wanted to give. They were passionate about giving. 
They were queuing up and falling over themselves to give out of their extreme poverty. If they are anything to go by, then to say that radical generosity gives voluntarily is just a gross understatement. They're passionate about giving. And Paul wants the same from the Corinthian church. Because look there in verse 8. He refuses to command them to give. Now he had the apostolic authority to command them to give. That was well within his sphere of influence. It was well within his jurisdiction to command them to give. He doesn't do it. He refuses to do it. Why? Because he wants them to give. He wants them to know the blessedness and the joy of giving out of love. He wants them to give voluntarily. He doesn't want to rob them of that. Fourth, radical generosity gives to the unworthy. Now, of course, we can restrict our giving, and often we do, to those who deserve it. We, we treat giving like investment. You look for the highest returns. Those who are most responsible, those who've got it together, those who are mo- most likely to be able to get back on their feet and repay within a certain amount of time. Those who've demonstrated some sort of ability to make progress. Now, there is some merit in that, all right? And we don't want to discard it all. We don't want to be reckless enablers. We don't want to be soft targets for con artists. We are not trying to be foolish. But we do need to recognize what I mentioned a little bit earlier, what I was commenting on a little bit earlier, this tendency to mask greed and tight-fisted hoarding with so-called wisdom. I do think that's a particular danger of ours in our constituency. Where there is true wisdom, of course we want to apply that because that's God's wisdom. And Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God himself. So of course we want to apply wisdom. But what we can do, the trap we can fall into, is to use some sort of counterfeit wisdom as an excuse not to give. As a, as a mask for what is just greed and a reluctance to give, a tight-fistedness. We have to recognize that if we are if we're looking for the candidate who is truly worthy of our generosity, we are never going to find him. He does not exist. And by the way, you wouldn't pass that test either. Neither would I. In our passage, the word grace turns up four times in just, ni- in just nine verses. Four times. Paul calls this famine relief aid an act of grace. And grace, per definition, is a gift to the unworthy. That's what the word means. The first concern of grace is need, not worthiness. And so the spirit of radical generosity is much more willing to take a risk on someone than we usually are. It's not trying to err. It's not trying to be stupid. It's not trying to make mistakes. But if it is going to err, it will err on the side of kindness rather than prudence. It looks for reasons to give rather than reasons not to give. Now, what's our first instinct? Are we looking for reasons to give? Or do we, are we more inclined to look for reasons not to give? I'll leave it to you to answer that question. Let me paraphrase uh, Jacques Elul again. We, we, we heard from him last week. We go back to him this week. He's really helpful. Christian sociologist. This is what he writes. In the competition that always exists between man and money, we must always side with humanity against the power of money. This power wants to destroy us. In our money dealings with others, money pushes us to put its interests before those of the other person. On the contrary, we cannot begin to measure the power of giving in human relations. Not only does it destroy the power of money, but even more, it introduces the one who receives the gift into the world of grace. That's seems to be what Paul is describing in the Macedonian churches. 
Radical generosity is an act of grace, and therefore, it gives to the unworthy. So what have we said so far? It's been a bit of a mouthful. Let's just take a bird's eye view. Radical generosity gives at inconvenient times. It gives beyond expectations, even beyond means. It gives voluntarily, and it gives to the unworthy. The undeserving. The obvious question. How are we ever going to do that? Because I don't know about you, but when I look at the profile of radical generosity, it feels like a crushing burden. It feels like something totally unattainable in my own life. Let me try and illustrate how we might come to grips with this thing. So imagine all of your wealth. It may not be much, but imagine all you possess is converted to gold. Okay, now go with me on this. It's converted to gold, and we stack it into railway cars. You know those railway wagons, those box cars that you sometimes see the freight trains pulling? Often they've loaded with coal. You know the ones I'm talking about? You've got ten box cars full of gold. This is a fun illustration, eh? Ten boxcars full of gold. That represents your wealth. That, that collection of boxcars is parked at the station called me and mine. Question is, how are we going to move it down the track so that we can offload some of that wealth at other stations? That's the question. How are you going to do that? Because ten boxcars full of gold has a lot of inertia. It doesn't want to move. It wants to stay put at that station called me and mine. The God of money does not want to get off the throne of your heart. It's that simple. How are you going to move that money? How are we going to get that train moving so that it looks like the speed train called radical generosity? Are you going to push that? Are you going to push that train down the track yourself? Is that our plan? Normally it is. And I hope you see how foolish a plan that is. Because that's a lot of moral freight. Even if we could, by some Herculean effort, move those 10 boxcars five meters down the track, you may be able to give away some gold, but you're just going to be replacing it with pig iron. The pig iron of your self-righteousness. And that also weighs a lot. Do you see what we're saying? Think back to the rich young ruler. We read about him at the beginning of the passage. Did you notice his wealth wasn't just material? It was also moral. I've kept all the commandments since I was a boy. So if we give our money away by our own moral effort, we are just going to be replacing one idol with another idol. We're going to be replacing gold with pig iron. We're finding our security in our material wealth. Now we're going to find it in our moral wealth. Point is, the train is going to still have a lot of inertia. It's going to be impossible to move it. We're not going to get very far. Moral effort just won't do. We need an engine to pull this train. A powerful engine. We have one. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know, he's speaking to disciples of Jesus, and so he can say with confidence, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I said to you at the beginning that dethroning the, the idol of money has something to do with radical generosity. And it does. That's true. It has everything to do with radical generosity. Just not ours. Dethroning money has everything to do with the radical generosity of God in Jesus Christ. He was the motivation for the Macedonians Look at verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. 
Jesus motivated the Macedonian church. Jesus motivated the Corinthian church. Jesus will motivate the church in Midrand. He was rich. He became poor so that we might become rich. That summary just doesn't do justice to his sacrifice and his gift. What are we talking about? He lived in the divine glory and lavish abundance of eternal love. He traded that for the petty human hatred of a naked, God-forsaken death by public execution with a crude wooden crossbar that he had to carry himself. The creator dying the carpenter's death. And he did that so that we would never have to know the absolute poverty, the total destitution, the second death of being God-forsaken. He did it so that we who are so very poor in love might know the lavish abundance of eternal love for ourselves. He went to the eternal slum so that we can go to the eternal palace. Just think about it with me. Jesus didn't ask his father, how much must I give? How much is expected? He didn't give 10% of his life, 10% of his love, 10% of his blood. He gave everything, and he gave it to the unworthy because he gave it to you and to me. He gave it because we are his treasure. And once that seeps into your soul, he will become yours. He will become your treasure. He's the engine to our train. When you finally get the fact that Jesus has a treasure that he delights in, that he sacrifices everything for, and you are that treasure, when you finally get that, he will become your treasure. And you will be able to let go of any other trifle in this life that lays claim to your heart. You'll be able to let it go freely because you have an infinite treasure secure at the right hand of the Father. Money will be nothing but a tool to you. Money will be nothing but an opportunity for radical generosity. And we need to pray, oh Lord, hasten the day when that is true. Let's pray now. Father, we cannot even begin to thank you for giving us the gift of your son, your one and only son, your beloved son, your other self. We hesitate, we are even scared to think about what it means for how you feel about us, that you gave us your beloved son. Father, that you delight in us, that we are your treasure, it's a profound mystery to us but it's a mystery full of joy and wonder. We pray that you'll give us insight into that mystery. Father, help us by your Spirit to begin to fathom the height, the depth, the breadth of your love for us in Christ Jesus. Help us to see this, the purity and perfection of the radical generosity of your love for what it actually is. Free us by that same love from this petty bondage of ours to the trifling pleasures of this world. Set us free into generosity. Set us free into the true blessedness of giving. Help us to give as freely as we've been given. We pray this in the name of our supreme treasure, the delight of our hearts, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so the first question this evening, what does it mean to give beyond means? It's just a practical example of what that, um, that looks like.
Yeah, so, so I think where we're being challenged there is um, often we would set up our own definition of um, what means are. So we would, we would establish a certain lifestyle and, and then say, with, with whatever I have left over, with that I'm free to give. So in other words, out of my surplus. I think giving beyond means is giving, giving in a way that it's, it means it's going to hurt you personally. It means you're going to have to forego something, uh, especially in our middle class context. Now, not every context is the same, okay? So, so if we were in a different community, that would have a different answer. But in our middle class context, and if you were here last week, you would recognize that stats say make it very clear that pretty much everyone in this room, I doubt if there's an exception, is very much middle class, right? So if you have a flush toilet in your dwelling place, you are middle class, okay? So that means we're middle class. Um, maybe there's one or two exceptions. And giving beyond our means in that setting is breaking the temptation to set up a lifestyle and say, I will give... If once I've established my lifestyle with my means, I'll give with whatever's left over. I think that's the challenge of of the New Testament teaching. It's giving so that it actually hurts. And and I say hurts, giving so that it it means we have to forego something. Because in the upside down kingdom of God, when you give from that place, you experience enormous blessing. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, do we take the Lord Jesus' words at face value? That's the question. Do we believe the promise? So I just want to qualify what I mean by it hurts. It just means it clips your, the wings of, of your ideal lifestyle that you've painted for yourself. Mm. Sure. Yeah, and that is such a, a thing because if you look at um, the world we live in, um, the world of algorithms and just social media and there's there is a lot of temptation to towards that and there's a lot of things screaming our way um, to say that this is the kind of lifestyle that you you ought to aspire to and if you mention iPhone 14 by any chance um, it will give it give you advert after advert and you suddenly think that well I, I need that um, that coming one um, um, so the, we continue on some of the stuff that you mentioned regarding um, so wisdom, wisdom, mastered greed. Um, so what? How do I create a boundary between wisdom? Sorry, wisdom marked greed, masked greed rather, and attending to my own personal needs. Um, so what's the? How do I create? Yeah, that difference between masking my greed as wisdom. Uh, versus attending to my own needs. Yeah. So I think it's being very sensitive to your own conscience. Uh, because I think, if we're honest, we know when we're doing this. Right? Um, and we'll, we'll shut down an opportunity to give. And once again, we'll do that in order to preserve a certain lifestyle. And, and then we'll call it wisdom. And that's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to attack, because I think the, I think once again the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ attacks that kind of thinking. And in order to access the true wisdom of the Scriptures and the true wisdom incarnate, we need to go to wisdom itself, which says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And if, and if the Lord is front and center and not this voice of the world, you will know, you'll have a better sense of can I give in a way that's going to impact me but really be a blessing to this other person? And it may, it may cause me significant difficulty, but can I trust the Lord in this? And I think that's what the fear of the Lord is, the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. This counterfeit wisdom that I'm trying to talk about is, is really 
is really just a greed that, that, that is baptized by calling it wisdom. That, that's the thing that I'm, I'm trying to prick. Because I, th- I think it's, a, it's a certainly a, a, a potential problem that I see in our circles quite a bit. And I see in my own heart. You know, wisdom says I need to have enough, I need to have more than enough for retirement because those years are coming. That's, that's what wisdom says, wisdom. But the fear of the Lord says I can trust him. And I can, I can, I can, I can relieve some hardship. And this, this money means more to this person, this potential recipient, than it does to me. And it's going, to, it's going to relieve suffering in their life. And yes, it may dent my financial plan for retirement, but how do those two things weigh against each other? And if I start with the Lord, I'm much more likely to arrive at a sensible solution than if, I, if, if my, my, my knee-jerk response to, to a need is to say, well, you know, it's not wise for me you know, it, to... to um, breach my financial plan for my future and the future of my family in any way, um, and wisdom preserves that, right? So, so wisdom in inverted commas. So, I think I'm just trying to put my finger on a quite a subtle danger in our in our in our constituency. Um, I'm not saying we do away with godly wisdom, because godly wisdom will will take us where we need to go in any event. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is at the center of godly wisdom. And so that's actually where we need to go. And that, and that begins with a fear of the Lord rather than a fear of my own circumstances or the fear of man or the fear of how uh, you know, my, my lifestyle compares to the Joneses, etc., etc. So, so rather than saying do away with wisdom and let's give, these are not exclusive things. In fact, godly wisdom will lead us into a radical generosity um, and one in which the Lord takes care of us and the other individual. So, so we want to pursue true wisdom rather than counterfeit wisdom. I hope that's clear. Um, I'm not saying it's wisdom or generosity. No, true wisdom will lead us into, into the kind of generosity the Lord is calling us to. I think that's true. And I think, I mean, there is a, a sense in which community plays a, ro- a big role in, in us being able, so getting another voice to descend that. Um, so getting another voice from a church community, whether you're part of a live group or part of a young adult group, to have somebody that you are accountable to. Um, I recently went on a hike, broke my phone. Um, I'm due for an upgrade um, and I was like, I, I need a new phone. Um, so it's, it's a question of that. Like, do I actually need a new phone? Um, or is, yeah, like what, what is the wisdom in that? And so I spoke to somebody from this church, and I'm like, listen, I think I'm, there's nothing wrong with getting a new phone, but mine still function. In fact, it's, it will still function for quite some time. Just keep me accountable um, on that regard because I think um, it's not a need. Um, It is something that I I truly want. And if I can just push the budget a bit, um, it's it's affordable. Um, But then that, I suppose, takes me away from pursuing a life of um, generosity. So I think our Christian environment can also help us in uh, moving towards a more godly godly wisdom, because we tend to deceive ourselves, which is what um, Royden was saying. Sorry, just before we go on there, I think Yanni was so helpful, and and guys, I think we're going to invite Yanni to do this uh, annually, so he gave our practical budgeting, and the place he started was, bear in mind, everything you have is God's. (laughs) It's his to begin with. The question is, what does he want you to do with what he's given you? And that's the wisdom we're looking at, right? Mm. That's, that's a wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord. Mm. Not what we, not our counterfeit wisdom that we use to block opportunities to give with. Mm. Shucks, yeah, these are proper questions. Um, how, do you, how do you keep a spirit of generosity in extreme, like, 
wishing that someone might be generous to you. That's like, like that's, yeah, I think in, it's a very good question. Just help um, me understand it. So. Um, so I myself, I'm just in a space where I feel somebody, like I need to be on the receiving side of generosity. How do I keep that spirit of being generous when I myself am like I'm living hand to mouth? Mm. And the other one that's related to, to that is I love to give my time to the church and I don't have money. When you talk about giving, does it, does it have to be money? So those um, two questions. Coming from an area and a place of lack, um, how do we, I guess, become generous? So I think we go back to what, what the teaching of Paul's letter to the Corinthians is, that our only motivation, uh, our only true motivation has to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're fixing your eyes on him and what he's given and how he impoverished his, himself, absolutely how he went to the war for us. And if he, if he hadn't, if he'd held something back, if he'd asked which he could have, think about the garden of Gethsemane. If he had just held something back and said, you know, Lord, when are you coming for me? Um, when are you going to protect me? We know you, who's going to vouch for me? Who's going to step in for me? Who's going to carry my burdens? But he didn't do that. And so I think it's a very valid question. And there is no human, humanly speaking, there's no way we're ever going to be generous um, in that sort of context. But some people are. This is the extraordinary thing. You know, all of us have known believers. In, like Paul knows the Macedonian churches. All of us have known believers who who, out of their extreme poverty, have been extraordinarily generous. Now they don't have a lot to give, but what they have, they give. And where does that come from? So, so I guess there's two parts to the answer. One, it is possible. It seems, on the face of it, it seems impossible. And humanly speaking, it is impossible. But it is possible. It's possible in Christ. It's possible as we fix our eyes on him, to draw resources and strength from him, to, to, to be open to the opportunities. So you may not have a lot to give. You may have almost nothing to give. And this relates to our second question. You may not have financial resources to give, but you can give a word of encouragement. You can, you can, you can give something far more precious than money. You can, you can give a genuine friendship, a genuine concern for others. You can give time on your knees in prayer for somebody else. So, so the answer is to the second question, but it relates to the first question is, no, you don't have to only give money, and some of us don't have money to give. I accept that in a particular circumstance. I think we often have more money to give than we think, and so we need to search our own hearts. I think we really do. But if you're genuinely in that situation, it's, and that's the whole point, I think, of or at least part of the point of the, of the woman giving into the, the temple treasury. The Lord sees what she gave. She gave nothing. It meant nothing. Couldn't even paint the, the money box with what she gave. But what she gave was more than anyone else. Do you see? Why? Because it was given out of a heart of devotion to the Lord. And if we are keeping our eyes on him, and if we are praying for opportunities to, to give whatever we have, he'll give us those opportunities and you will know the blessedness of giving. Because I suppose that's part of the awfulness of poverty, is that it robs you, seemingly, on the surface of it, of this capacity to love others and bless others. But that's not true in Christ, because he shows us that you have all these other opportunities and ways in which you can give and be a blessing to others, just by your presence in community, just by a kind word. Uh, uh, an act of sacrificing your time, as I think the person who asked the question mm. suggested. So I hope that's the beginnings of an answer. Mm. That's powerful. Um, shared a story last year of um, a man from our ground staff. Um, I'm not going to mention my name. Um, 
pretty sure that he's struggling. Uh, he has a family back home. Um, one of our guys was getting married, and he, <laughs> I, I later heard the story that he gave of what must have been like a thousand rand or so, mm. which is quite a lot of money uh, for someone who's um, doing ground groundwork, um, so that that man um, could have a, a wedding. And for me, I think that that uh, that moved me, that encouraged me. That was the Macedonian story mm. in some ways that he like he gave out of nothing. So. Yeah, I think um, when we draw from the resources of Christ, as you've um, told us this evening, um, he enables us to look for those opportunities um, to give uh, and to understand uh, that there are more ways to be generous than one. Um, two questions. I think the last one will... Um, if there's still more questions, please just raise your hand where you are with the one that you written, you've written down. Um, what's the accurate way of giving to the church or tithe thing according to the Old and New Testament? So this is on uh, theological um, ground. What, how, yeah, what do we make of giving towards church and tithing according to the Old um, and New Testament? Uh, so I don't, I don't have all the details at my fingertips, so others must come in. But, but the tithe was... In, at least in the Old Testament, was um, just one of many commandments to give. So that's the first mistake we make. We think it's the only one, and we kind of isolate it. But there were there were all sorts of commandments to give and all sorts of injunctions to be generous throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Like, for instance, a simple one, you weren't supposed to harvest right to the edge of your field. You were supposed to leave that for the poor so that they could then go through and harvest after you'd harvested. So just one example. Um, but there are many, many examples. So, so to isolate just the tithe, um, I think, is not fair to what the Old Testament was calling believers to. And in the New Testament, it's so interesting that we don't have a specific injunction. All we see is the, ex- the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who gives absolutely everything. And then his disciples following suit in various ways. Um, Giving, giving their life savings in the example of, of the lady who breaks the perfume uh, to anoint him for burial. That, you know, people have done the calculations. That's her life savings. And, and she gives that to honor him. And so we have, these, we have a few examples like that in the New Testament of just radical generosity. And I think it's, it's conspicuous by its absence that we don't have a rule. Um, it says something to us. Because what I was trying to say, and I don't think I said it very clearly in the sermon, is that what we tend to do with rules is we treat them transactionally. So we relate to the rule. God, I've kept the rule. Now you owe me something because I've kept the rule. And all of you, I've kept the rule. So now you owe me something. You owe me a certain stature in this community. Right? That's what we tend to do with rules. Uh, we, we pervert them and use them as leverage over against others and even over against God himself. There's no rule in the New Testament because the Lord Jesus has fulfilled every giving obligation that the Sinai Covenant laid down in himself and surpassed it. And so now we live in the freedom of Christ. And the question is, how are we going to respond to God's gift to us in Christ? That becomes the question. And of course, the answer is you give yourself all that you are in every situation. That's why Paul says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Right? Sacrifice is total. The animal gives its whole life. Paul says you don't kill yourself, you're a living sacrifice. So it's a total claim on your life. And so radical generosity goes well beyond bank balance. It relates back to the other question. It's all that you are is the only appropriate response to what Jesus has given. Does that make sense? Mm. Therefore, no rule. No 10%, no. No. It's all his to begin with. 
question is, how are you going to give it back to him in thanksgiving? Not to earn your salvation, but as an act of worship and love and adoration and thanksgiving. Here's my life, Lord. Take me. Mm. Including my bank balance. Which is an area of real struggle for us. Um, we have come to our last question. Um, and I think this touches on what some of the stuff you said last week uh, regarding contentment. I think this question is related to that. How do I know if I am being ambitious in amassing wealth or if I am chasing money selfishly? selflessly? Um. So, three simple tests. Uh, number one, you measure yourself against what you find in the Word. So you need to be saturated by the Word. Um, number two, you need to listen to your conscience um, and the Spirit in dialogue with your conscience. So if, if you find yourself justifying, that's normally a clue right? That's normally a clue that there's something wrong. If you find yourself arguing for a certain thing, that's normally a a clue. In other words, Royden, this isn't actually just naked greed and ambition for these 10 reasons. The fact that I'm listing 10 reasons should be a big red flag to me. So we've got, to, we've got to listen to our consciences. We've got to listen to the Spirit's witness to our consciences. We've got to be in the Word. And your answer previously, which I think is so important, wisdom is a team sport. We've got to be in relationship with believers who can hold us to account and say, hey, let's talk about this job. What is, what, why do you want this job? So it goes back to, to Bishop Martin's comment. We've known guys who the wisdom of the world says you are absolutely mad if you don't take this job. Like, why would you not take You know how much good you can do with this job and with this money. But they've turned it down, and no doubt in dialogue with other believers, and, and listening to their consciences, and knowing what the Scripture says about God and His priorities, which are primarily relational. So I think, I think you... Those three things will help us, will be, will be signposts to us in terms of discerning what, what, what are my true motives in this thing. Mm. And of course, it's never an exact science, but you stand a much better chance of making a good call if, if you're exercising those spiritual disciplines, I think. Mm. Um, there are no further questions. I just want to, I mean, Groden, you've mentioned this on your sermon um, it comes quite a lot in your preaching. Uh, the emphasis on grace as the thing that pushes that um, engine and that um, that train. Like, why is it so important for us to to get that? Because I might walk away from here and feel like, shucks, um, another sermon on giving or another sermon on whatever it is that Jesus is calling us to, and then feel like I've not meshed up and walk away with guilt, even after, like... Um, a sermon that's filled with grace. Like why, like, why do you think it's important for us to, or for you, why do you emphasize that, that grace element? Um, so I think, I think because it's, it's, the, it's the, the structure of the, the structure and grammar of the, of the New Testament, right? Mm. So, so it's not me, it's there in the text. Look, just read that 2 Corinthians passage again. He's calling them, give, give, radical giving, radical giving. But how? Mm. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord mm. Jesus Christ. He reminds them of what they already know. And he says that's what's going to make a difference. Mm. And so if we pay attention, once you see it there, you see it everywhere. Um, and that is the, that is the, the, the great um, ethical motivator in all of the New Testament, and it's at the heart of the gospel. And one way of seeing it, I think, is thinking of the alternative. Mm. The alternative is, 
I do this in my own moral strength. And that leads to one of two things. Absolute, I'm absolutely crushed by guilt or I'm absolutely swollen by pride. And neither of those things is healthy. Um, and both of those things tend to break our relationship with the Lord. And what the Lord does is he deals with our guilt. What grace does, he deals with our guilt, but in a way that's profoundly humbling. So you can't be proud, right? So your guilt is dealt with, you're free, but there's no room for pride because you didn't do it. And so grace leaves us in this beautiful freedom where the Lord says, you're my child, and, and this is what I want you to do. And when you don't do it, it's not now you're no longer his child. And when you do do it, it's, it's a gift that he's given you. Hmm. So you don't become elevated to something above and beyond that status. No, you're still just his child living in the freedom of this love relationship with your father. And so I think the alternative speaks to why we really want to cling to grace. And, of course, the scriptures themselves that grace is just the heartbeat. It's just right at the center. We've missed it. If we don't have grace, we've missed the big thing that the, that the, new, that the scriptures are pushing at us constantly. We've, we've missed the, the moral of the story, yeah. um, the heartbeat of the story. We've missed it. So it has to be grace. Amen. Amen. Um.